Excellent singing this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. This morning is our um, Vision Sunday. We do this every year uh, just as a reminder of what God's vision is for you. And every year I like to remind you of our, our four purposes as a church. And uh, we have them, the banners up here just to remind us to worship God, to grow together, to serve others, and to reach the world. Um, what is a Vision Sunday? Some ask, what is that all about? What is the reason for that? Well, the word vision can be uh, defined as the state of being able to see. Um, and we're not just talking about being able to see with our eyes. We're talking about more than that. We're concerned about uh, what should be our focus. Specifically, what is it that we should be looking at? What should be our goal in life? And what should it be that we are trying to obtain, not only as individuals, but as a church? Every church has a purpose statement. Every church has a vision. Some, some churches will say that their goal is to reach a certain number of members, certain number of attenders, or maybe to establish more programs. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but hear me. Okay, that should not be our vision or our goal. If, if our vision, our goal was to, to grow, we could change things in such a way that we could grow. It doesn't mean we're doing what God wants us to do. So those goals, although they may be right in and of themselves, are not uh, the vision that God has for us. So what is it that God wants us to gaze on? What is it God wants us to look on? And I believe that is Jesus Christ. I'm going to read to you our text for today in Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to, to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will help us as we look at this text. Um, Lord, it's one that we've heard and read and seen many times. And yet so often... It's one of the most neglected texts of the church. But Lord, I pray that you will help us to see that you have given us a purpose. Lord, help me as I, I preach this. Lord, give me the words to say. Direct me to the exact words you want me to say. And help me to speak with clarity. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want this morning to implore you to think about this very familiar passage. It's one that I'm sure you have heard many messages on. Um, but I, and In fact, I think one of the problems is, is that maybe we've gotten dangerously too familiar with this text to the point that we, it ceases to impact us. It ceases to change the way that we think, and it should. Before we get into the, the heart of the text, I just want to notice a few introductory thoughts about this passage. I started reading in verse 16. Oftentimes we just immediately jump down to verse 19, but I, I want to just focus on a few things earlier than that, that so that you understand as we get into the text what's being talked about. First of all, I want you to understand that as Jesus is about to launch into a, 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 uh, a command to his disciples and a a very passionate plea for what they are to do, I want you to notice that as he's about to do that, they are already doing what he told them to do. Notice, if you will, in, in verse 16, it says that they went up to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. If you notice back in chapter 28, look first at verse 7, and here we see this is the resurrection, and, and Jesus um, had, had rose, risen again, and the angel comes and appears to these women that had come to see Jesus. And it says in verse 7, uh, it says to them, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. You see, he had told them to do that. We see down in verse 10, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And where do we see them here in this passage? They're in Galilee, and so they were already obeying God. And that's so important because as we get into this text, I do not believe that this 
passage can be obeyed unless we're obeying God in, other, in, in the other areas that God tells us to do. If you're not obeying, if you're not in obedience to God, you're not going to do this one. See, the second thing, their, their heart attitude was right. Notice again, if you will, in verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Immediately he comes and their attitude is one, not of, I mean, it could be numerous things. They could have said, hey, Jesus, tell us more about, about how you uh, rose again or, or tell us what's going to happen or tell us, but they didn't. Immediately what they did is begin worshiping because their heart was right and they knew that that's what they needed to do. They worshiped God. But then I want you to also notice a key thought in that passage. Verse 17, it says there, but some doubted. I think in every situation, in every setting, there are going to be people who doubt the message of God. Even today, as I go through this message, there will be some of you who doubt what I say. There will be some of you who reject what I say. I say that just to remind us that our heart needs to be in such a way where we're ready to accept the message. I say that also so we understand to, to everyone here that some people next to you or around you are not going to believe the same way you do. We see in this passage then, I want to look at what is the vision God has for his church? What is the purpose statement that God has given us as a church for First Baptist Church and for whatever church you're a part of? It says here uh, three aspects that I want you to look at. Oh, first of all, I've got to fly through these here. Sorry, I said them, I didn't do them. There we go. God's vision for the church must be all about God. If you have your bulletin, you can see the notes in there. You can take them if you want. But God's vision for the church must all be about God. First of all, we see we must recognize that Jesus has all power. Look again, verse 18. It says, Jesus came to them and he said to them, the first thing he says is all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. What we need to understand is this task that God is about to give them in verses 19 and 20, uh, this task is 100% based on the information that we receive in verse 18. In other words, we cannot do the mission that God has for us until we realize that it can only be done through the power of Jesus. See, we cannot go and make disciples until first we realize that it must be all about Jesus. The last three weeks as a church, we've been focusing on prayer. I, I challenge you as a church to pray specifically for four areas for the last um, three weeks. I'm not going to ask how you did, but I hope you did well. But one of the things that we were trying to get across was this. We cannot do anything apart from God. And when we talk about this task, we must understand that. Too often we try to do things in our own strength, don't we? We can't. But the second aspect of that that I want you to understand is that the realization is that this also silences the views of many Christians when it comes to this passage, that they say they can't do it because they're not gifted enough. I mean, how many times have I heard that? When, I, when we talk about evangelism, we talk about outreach, and people say, well, that's just not my gift. That's a load of baloney, sorry. Because the reality is that you are not gifted enough. I am not gifted enough. No one is gifted enough. And that's the point of what Jesus is saying. Before he says to them, go, he says this, I want you to know something, that all power has been given to me. Now, therefore, with that in mind, you go. Because they understood they couldn't do it on their own. If for some reason that you don't think maybe, well, is Jesus powerful enough to empower me to do? I want to do something real quick in the next few moments. And you see in your notes six things we're going to look at. Because leading up to Matthew, there are, there are numerous times where we see, leading up to Matthew chapter 28, we see where Jesus had power. I want you to give you just a little overview of this. First of all, Jesus has authority over nations. And I'm going to give you some references. You can jot these down. We're not going to look them up. Uh, most of them are longer passages, so you can go back and read them later. But in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we see this is a story when Jesus was just a baby and the wise men came. The Bible makes a very point, uh, a point of saying that these men were men that came from uh, faraway lands. And they came, and what was it they did? They came and they worshipped him. We'll look later and see that over and over again, the Bible talks about how nations bow to Jesus. 
Because Jesus has authority over nations. Secondly, Jesus has authority over disease. And in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, or 1 through 4, we see Jesus comes and he heals a leper, a man who was, who was uh, uh, afflicted with the disease of leprosy, and Jesus heals him. That's not the only place. We see places where he healed blind men. We see places where he healed lame men. Places where he healed new, so many different diseases because Jesus has power over diseases. Jesus, thirdly, has power over nature. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, Jesus, with his mere words, calms the storm. And then we see just a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 14 when Jesus himself walks on water because nothing has power over Jesus, but Jesus has power over everything. You see, Jesus has power over demons. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 28, uh, Jesus is confronted by two men who are under the, the power of demons. And, and the Bible tells us that, that he expels the demons from these men and throws the demons into the pigs and the, and the pigs run away. We see his power over demons. Fifth, we see he has power over, authority over sin. In Matthew chapter 9 is an interesting story. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Jesus is in his travels and he comes upon a man who is paralyzed. It's obvious he can't walk. Now there's other places where Jesus comes along a man who is paralyzed and he says to him what? He says, take up your bed and walk. But in this particular passage, he doesn't say that. In this particular passage, he looks at the man who's lame and can't walk and he looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. That's interesting. The religious men were angry about that. How dare this man forgive sins? And remember Jesus' response? He basically, he says to him, you think nothing of me healing a lame man? But you're angry when I say your sins are forgiven? Isn't it, more, isn't it harder to heal a lame man? What's the point? Is He's saying, hey, he has authority over sin. But then ultimately, Jesus has authority over death. Matthew chapter 9, we see in verse 18 where he brought a young girl back to life. And we see numerous times in the Bible where Jesus brought someone back to life, but the, the ultimate is when he raised himself from the grave. You say, why are you saying all this? Because when we look back, we see uh, when Jesus says to his disciples, all authority, all power is given to me. We can believe it. Because sometimes this task that God has given us seems overwhelming. It seems impossible. It seems outside of our comfort zone. But yet what God is saying, Jesus is saying, is that I have the ability to do it. But secondly, I want you to notice this. Not only must we recognize that Jesus has all power, but we must submit our lives to his authority. I've often heard people say this. They say that we need to make Jesus Lord. Now, I understand what people are saying when they say that. I really do. But there's a little humor in that statement. I mean, think about that for a moment. I mean, think about the audacity of a human being standing up and saying, we need to make Jesus Lord, as if they can do that. Jesus is already Lord. Jesus is already the God of the universe. Jesus is already authority over all things. Notice what it says in Philippians chapter 2, what Paul tells us and reminds us after the great section where it talks about Jesus humbling himself and coming there. Then it says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible tells us here in other places, such as Revelation, that one day every man will bow before Jesus as Lord. The most evil criminal that has ever lived will one day bow before the Lord. The most committed atheist that has ever existed will one day bow before the Lord. The most cruel dictator that during his lifetime killed people who proclaimed the name of the Lord will one day bow before Jesus. Every world leader that has ever lived, whether we're talking about President Trump or, or, or any others will one day bow before the Lord. And here's the thing. Every single person in this room will one day bow and call Jesus Lord. The question is not whether you will make Jesus Lord. 
The question is, will you bow the knee and call Him Lord now? Or will you bow the knee and call Him Lord when it's too late? You see, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. And one day, Jesus will stand and every knee will bow. You see, that's, that's the sum of, of what it means to be a Christian. That's the definition of the idea there. What does it say in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised uh, him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice in that passage, he says, what do we need to do? We need to confess that Jesus is Lord. We need to say, Jesus, you are everything. I am nothing. And then believe in his heart, not on what I have done, but what God has done and what Jesus has done. Notice there, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And God did it for us. We need to uh, confess our sins. We need to confess that Jesus is Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't done that. You have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and so therefore, because you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you, uh, He is not Lord of your life. You need to do that before it's too late. But I want you to notice in Scripture that, uh, that nowhere in Scripture do we get the idea that salvation is the end of the process. Nowhere in Scripture do we get the idea that the moment we get saved, everything, nothing changes after that, and everything stays the same. Look at a couple, another verse here. Look at Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. And Jesus told his disciples, these were already people who had claimed uh, to know Christ, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So in other words, to be a Christian means that you submit everything to Jesus as Lord of your life. Everything. To be a Christian means that you put everything aside, you put everything that you know, everything that you care about aside. In other words, he should be the Lord over every aspect of your life. He should be Lord over your time, he should be Lord over your money, he should be Lord over your relationships, he should be Lord over your conversations, he should be Lord over your, uh, of your pursuits, everything that you do. When Jesus is Lord over your life, things change drastically. Think about those for a moment. When Jesus is Lord of your life, how does that affect your finances? What decisions do you make? When Jesus is Lord of your time, how does that affect what you do? When Jesus is Lord of your conversation, how does it affect the way that you talk to people? When Jesus is Lord of your relationships, how does that impact the way that you treat your wife or that you treat your kids or that you treat your boss? See, when Jesus is Lord of your life, things look differently. What happens is we begin to realize when Jesus is Lord over our life that nothing else matters. And sometimes people will say, well, we have to sacrifice for Jesus. We have to sacrifice uh, all these things so that we can follow Christ. And the reality is, no, it's not a sacrifice if you're getting something better. And that's what we get with Jesus. How many pleasures, how many pursuits, how many people, how many possessions can we run after until we realize that nothing satisfies us? Think about that for a moment. How often, how many times have you got something, you purchased something, and, and it's not long after that you, you want to upgrade? I remember uh, just over a year and a half ago, my family, we moved, and we had been looking forward to moving for a few years, and it just God kept closing doors, and finally uh, we moved, and, and we moved to a house, a bigger house, set up better for us. So many of you have been there, it's, and we really like our house, but I found something interesting. A few months after we had been there, one day I was sitting in my house, and I'm looking around, I'm like, oh, you know what this house is missing? And it and it dawned on me, here I am doing the same thing we always do, don't we? We're never satisfied. And the only thing that is ever going to satisfy us is Jesus. The things of this world are always going to leave you longing for more. The things of this world are always going to leave you empty, but Jesus is different. Look at, look at another verse. This is, a, this is an interesting verse. Look, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Think about this story for a moment, okay? Here's this guy. He's walking through the field. 
and somehow he stumbles over this massive treasure. Now he knows he doesn't own this field, and so therefore this treasure is not his. And so he thinks uh, for a moment, how am I going to handle this? And he finds out, I don't know if he went on realtor.com or what, but he found out that the house was for sale, that the property was for sale. He can't afford it. But this treasure will change his life. So what does he do? He goes home, he grabs everything of value. He grabs, can you imagine the look he got from his wife? He goes and he grabs all her jewelry. says, honey, I'm going to sell this at the market. I'm sure she was thinking, you're doing what? He goes and he sells his tent and he sells this and he sells his animals and he sells that. And I'm sure that as you go to the market and as his friends would walk by, they'd be like, what are you doing? Have you gone mad? And he just smiles. Nope. I got something better in mind. He sells it all and he goes and he buys the field and he has this treasure that is far more than anything he ever had. See, here's the thing is when you live for God and when you place God as Lord of your life and it changes the way you do, you know what happens? People around you are going to think you're nuts. But you're realizing something. I'm giving up all this for something way better. I heard recently about a lawyer who was making big bucks. And he realized that this was, it was not satisfying him. He was a Christian man. So he got out of the, the practice he was in and he started his own and he was working and uh, taking small, small jobs not a lot of money, doing a lot of cases pro bono and not making as much money. He had to sell his house, had to sell his car, get a smaller house, a cheaper car. And someone asked him about it, and he said, you know what, um, I, 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 I love coming to church because when I come to church, it makes my crazy seem normal because there's other people doing the same thing as me. And the point is, is that bowing our knee to the authority of Jesus on this earth should look different, and it should look so different that everyone notices. Thirdly, we see that we must recognize that Jesus has all power. We must submit our lives to his authority. And thirdly, we must give our lives for his glory. You see, when we submit our lives to Christ, when we give up everything, when we realize that the only reason that we even have the opportunity to live for him is because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, then we understand that we must give everything in our lives to promote who he is and to exalt his name. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For we are bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. When we realize that everything is about God, then suddenly our motives change and our desires change and no longer longer are we concerned about how people view us, we're concerned about glorifying God in everything we do. Secondly, we want to notice that God's vision for the church is not just all about him, but God's vision for the church is discipleship. Let's dive into this passage here a little bit more. Look at verse 19 of Matthew chapter 28. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There are two aspects I want you to notice uh, we'll talk about. First of all, Christ wants us to be growing disciples. You say, where do you get that in the passage? Well, we are called to make disciples, but we cannot make disciples unless we ourselves are first disciples and are growing as disciples. Let me ask you this question. What is a disciple? Well, in simple term, a disciple is a learner or a follower. So therefore, we must be learning more about Jesus so that we can grow to be more like him so that we can then make other disciples who do the same thing. Let me give you an example. What if I started going around and telling you about this amazing author that I heard about? Man, he's written all these books, and, and you'll love them. They're on different topics. He has one on uh, the, these topics in history and these one in topics of science, whatever you like. I mean, he's just the most incredible author you've ever heard about. He's entertaining. He's educational. You will love his books. He's changing lives. And then one of you comes and says to me, well, what, what's your favorite book that you've read of his? 
Well, I haven't read any of his books. Well, and then how can you say he's amazing? I don't know. I just, I just heard about him. Well, I'm not going to read his books then. You, would, you wouldn't give any attention to what I'm saying, but, but if I came and said, yeah, I've read all of his books, and here's the best one, and here's, this one's really good, and this one's really good, suddenly you would be more inclined to hear what I'm having to say. And the same idea is true. We are, uh, if I am not really a disciple, or if I'm a disciple that's stagnant in my relationship, there is no way that I can have others grow. The command does not say here, go and grow as a disciple, because that's a given. It's something that we should be doing. And that's, that's the grow process as we grow together, that we should be growing as disciples. We should be changing. We should be molding ourselves through God's power into the image of Christ so that when we go out and tell people, they're going, yeah, I see it in you. I see something different. It's, it's something I, I, I want to be a part of. Secondly, we see that God wants us to make disciples. This is about bringing others to, the, to understand the power of Jesus and the purpose of glorifying him. Here's my fear, and I, I, I'm not trying to offend anyone, but my fear is that the majority of Christians never get to this point. Everything I've said to this point, you would agree with. You would agree that Jesus needs to be Lord of your life. You would agree that Jesus has all power. You would agree that you need to grow as Christians, but, uh, or at least attempt to do it. But suddenly, here our responsibility to make disciples, and you know what happens? Immediately what happens, and some of you have already done it here, immediately what happens is you begin to make excuses of why you don't. And you begin to assign the job to someone else. Well, that's Pastor Pete's job. This passage is to every single person who is called upon the name of the Lord. Go and make disciples. I was looking recently at an uh, article, and it was, it was about a survey that was taken among Christians, and really the, the findings are just are sad. It said that uh, of the survey, 80% of Christians who regularly attend church, most of you, 80% said that they feel that they have the responsibility to share their faith. 80%. But then it went on and said 61% say that they do it, have done it less than once in their lifetime. Think about that for a moment. 61% of Christians say they have shared their faith less than once. You get the number that we're talking about? In their lifetime. See, we have this thing as Christians that we do where we judge everyone else when they do wrong. When, when someone is a, a gossip, we sure love to point it out. When someone has a temper, we sure like to tell them they're wrong. When someone is a liar, we will point that out. If someone is an adulterer, oh, we'll definitely point that one out. But when God says to you as Christians, go and make disciples, and you step back and go, nope, that's not my job, that's someone else's, you somehow... Excuse ourselves. The survey went on to say that they asked how, how many unchurched people had you invited to church? And 49% said zero. That's crazy. And I believe the church, ours and other churches alike, are filled with people who have been saved for 10, 20, 30, 40, and maybe even 50 years who have never even once led someone outside of their kids to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's appalling. It's not that we're not active in church. We're active in church. We're doing all kinds of things aimed at growing in Christ. And we're growing as individuals. But somewhere along the way, we miss the command of God to multiply the life of Christ. We've missed it. Dawson Troutman, some of you maybe have heard of him. He was, for many years, he was the head of the Navigators, which was a group that was focused on outreach and evangelism. And he said this, This is a number of years ago, by the way. He said, the curse of today is that we are too busy. 
I'm not talking about being busy earning money to provide food or to provide for my family. I am talking about being busy doing Christian things. Then he said this, we have spiritual activity, but little to no productivity. That's sad, but true. Remember this, when Jesus gave his command, what was the outcome of this? What was the outcome of this among the disciples' lives at that moment? The outcome of this was that the disciples went. And if you study history, the Bible doesn't tell us all these things, but if you go and study church history, you'll find that these disciples literally went all over the world. And within just a matter of a few years, this, this command had spread around and, and Christians had, had grown all over the world. And this was all done without TV, without radio, without internet, without any print media and yet the world was saturated with the gospel in just a few short years. Why? Because it was spread by the disciples who went. And they told. In many cases, one by one, they shared the gospel with everyone they came in contact with. See, the command of Matthew chapter 28 is not a command for us to come and sit in this building and do church. Notice what it says, the command is to go. To go to every point of this world and take the gospel with us. To go to your work, to go to your neighborhood, to go to your places of retail, to go to your family and take with you the gospel. So how do we do it? Let's look at uh, three aspects of this command. First of all, we share the word. Notice what he says there, go therefore and make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That is the idea of, of sharing the world. Think, think about it right now in your life, those who need the gospel. Just take a moment and do that. Think about right now individuals in your life who need the gospel. Do you have a name? A couple names? Two, three names? Think about it. Here's the thing. That name that you thought of, God loves them. God loves them so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to take away their sins that they couldn't do. But here's where where it gets even crazier. God loves them enough that he put you in their life so you could tell them the good news of Jesus dying on the cross to take away their sin. You are the one that God put in their life to bring them to him. In most cases, it's not me. It's not Pastor Nate. It's you. We are to go. We are to share the word. Secondly, we are to show the word. Notice what it says next. And we could take more time talking about these individual things, but I want to go through them here. Uh, It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. What's the significance of baptism? Baptism today is significant, but in, in, in many other cultures, even in our world today, and in in this time here when the disciples uh, were, baptism was, was a huge deal because it was an immediate display to the world around of the faith that you had in Jesus Christ. When someone placed their faith in the work that Jesus did on the cross, they revealed their faith to their friends, to their loved ones, and, uh, and many times it cost them, but they revealed it through the act of baptism. So the baptism is, is one beginning point, but so many other things. This is where we, we ought to be displaying our faith to all the world as the, we live our lives. Now, I want, I want you to understand trends of uh, evangelism. And uh, About you know, 20, 30 years ago, there started to be this trend that, that we shouldn't be uh, offending people with the gospel, and so we shouldn't, we shouldn't just pound the gospel into people's lives. And so the, the teaching was what we should do is we should live the gospel out. But what happened is, is we as Christians, a lot of times what we did is we lived the gospel out, but the word never came out. Yeah, we live godly lives in front of our neighbors, and we live godly lives in front of our family, and we live godly lives in front of all the people around us, but it doesn't matter if we don't share. Notice in this passage, the first thing he says is go. Go and make disciples share. And, and, and while you're doing that, show your life. It's, it can't be the other way around. We have to be people who are going and, and then displaying, but thirdly, we are teaching We cannot teach what we do not know. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you to do. See, this this command is not just simply a 
a speed round into a bad part of town to tell people about the gospel and lead them in a sinner's prayer and then run away as fast as we can. No, this is a take someone from the point of salvation to the point where they're ready to go and lead someone else to the Lord. It's not an overnight process. Discipleship takes time. And many times that's why we're afraid to do it. I want you to notice one last thing. God's vision for the church is to reach the nations. This is a really cool thought, and I want you to notice this. Look at verse 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Understand, when I say this word nations, I am not referring to the, all the organized bodies of government and the people associated with it. I am not saying, you know, nations, by, by that I don't mean, I'm not just talking Great Britain or, or Russia, or I'm not talking about that. But what this word means is, is different than that, because that's not what was talked about at that time when Jesus said this. Uh, what he's talking about when he says nations is all people groups. All ethnicities. All uh, types of tribes and, and languages and, and all people. He says, go. In other words, he's saying to you, we need to go and tell everyone. Here's the cool part, is that has been God's plan from the very beginning. This is not something new that Jesus established here. You know, a lot of times we think about in the Old Testament that, that God was all about the Jews and God was working in the Jews and God was basically, in, in our mind, sometimes we think God was just ignoring everyone else, but that's not it. In fact, from the very beginning, God's plan and God's purpose was so that all the nations of the world would hear about Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know that? What I'm going to do for a few moments is I want to run through um, about 8, 10 passages of Scripture. They're going to be on the screen. You can write the passages down. You probably won't have time to turn there. And I want you to show you what I mean, okay? Okay. First of all, in Genesis chapter 12, this is where God appears to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to do some great things. And notice what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And notice what he says next. In, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's intention from the very beginning here was that all the nations would hear. Let's look at another one. We see in Genesis chapter 26, he reiterates this. Now he's talking to Isaac, Abraham's son. And what does he say there? Isaac, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of earth shall be blessed. Look what he said to Jacob in, in Genesis chapter 28. He says, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, in your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We go on in Exodus. Now God's working through Moses, and he says in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, and so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God's intention was not that it would just be for a small pocket of people, but that God wanted it to explode throughout all the world. We see in Joshua here, God, in this passage, Joshua is speaking, and he's speaking to the people, but he's explaining to the people who God is and what God wants to do. And he says this, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that why all the nations of the earth may know the hand of the Lord is mighty. We come on and we go to 1 Chronicles. This is David singing a praise to God about God. And he says this, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from today to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among the people. We see in 2 Chronicles, this is now Solomon. Solomon is, is speaking, and this is at the dedication of the temple. God had told Solomon to build this temple. Now that temple was built so that they could worship God. And that temple later on became something uh, that God did not want. When Jesus came and he, remember when he ran the money changers out of the temple? Which is a whole another interesting story in that. But he, so... 
this temple was built, and we often think of the temple as just being about the Jews. Notice what it says here. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not your people, Israel, comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and prays towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. We see in Psalms, and, and really, um, as I was looking through and studying this, there's, there's, I don't know, scores of times in Psalms where this phrasing is used. He says in Psalms 22, David said, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. In Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 18, God says to Isaiah, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I mentioned a moment ago, and I don't have the verse here, but the passage in, 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 um, in, in Matthew where, where Jesus comes in the temple and, and he destroys what they were trying to make profit of. You know one of the reasons why that was such a big deal to Jesus? If you know the temple, what was set up was there was the, the, the Holy of Holies and then there was the, the court outside of that and, there were, and then there was sections beyond that. And there were sections where only the Jewish men could go and then Jewish women's. And then there was a section called the Court of the Gentiles. And this was a place where if you were not born as a Jew, you could come and if you had converted, you could come and you could, you could worship God in the Court of the Gentiles. And that was the place where this... Uh, all this was taking place when they were selling the animals and they were exchanging the money. And Jesus came in as if Jesus was saying this, listen, worshiping me is not reserved just for you as Jews. It goes on in Matthew chapter 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. We know the passage in Acts where he's talking to his disciples. He says, but you should receive power and the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then we come to the, the last passage I want to look at. In Revelation, this is future. This is uh, down the road at some time. And it says, look there, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robe with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, why, why are we looking at this? Because I want you to understand that God's plan is that his good news, his gospel, be proclaimed to all the world. Be claimed to all the people. Because as I said, one day we will all stand and then we will bow before Jesus. And the person next to you, they may not be like you. They may not be, speak your language. They may not be from your nation. They may not look like you, but yet we'll all gather together and worship God. And we'll proclaim His holiness. God's desire is for us as a church then. What is God's vision for us as a church is that we go and make disciples. What are you doing about that? If we're honest with ourselves, this is a really hard message. It's a weakness because we get so wrapped up in ministry here that sometimes we forget what God has us to do out there. So in the last few moments, how does that affect us here at First Baptist Church? What are we going to do about it? I feel that as believers and as a church, we have a problem. Somewhere over the last 20 to 30 years, our nation has changed drastically in its morality. And what happened as our nation began to change drastically in, in its morality, our, our, our church, Christians, we pulled away from the world to protect ourselves from contamination. And in so doing, we have had built little or maybe no relationships with unsaved people. 
In the relationships that we do have with the lost, we have so removed Christ from it that we have little or no spiritual conversation. And that needs to change. And I think that, this, that the, the, the same can be said, not just you as individuals, but as us as a church. And I think what has happened is, is we have become so ingrained in our building and we've sequestered ourselves in this that we lose track of what God wants us to do. And unfortunately, uh, in many cases, because of the change of the world around us, our old methods do not work. And for those of you that immediately are going to rise up and be, uh-oh, what's he going to say now? I really want you to think about this. Let me give you one example. I, I love studying the history of our church, and sometimes as you study the history of our church, people show me photos and tell me stories about, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when this church would have VBS, and we'd go and we'd knock on doors, and we'd invite people to VBS, and we'd, I don't know, some of you maybe remember this, some of you, this is the first time you've heard of it, we'd have two-week VBSs, and we'd have three, 400 people come to VBS. It's not happening today. I am not saying that we shouldn't go and knock on doors, but what I'm saying is this. Let me explain to you what happens. You go and knock on someone's door. First of all, you are talking to someone who may have never been in church themselves, and so why in the world would they ever let their kid go? Or maybe they're too busy, or maybe they say, I don't know you, or even worse, but yet very true, some will say this, I'm not sending my child to church. Churches are notorious for crimes against kids. And so because of that, that method doesn't work the same. And if we sit here and beat our heads thinking, why are people not coming? Maybe it's because it's not working. So what do we need to do? What I think is as individuals and as a church, we need to rebuild relationships. We need to rebuild relationships with the people around us so that we can again be able to share the gospel. With that in mind, our theme for 2018, even though we're a month and a half in, we're kicking this off now, our theme for this year is building bridges. We need to rebuild relationships as believers with our neighbors, with our community, and with the world. We need to be very active as, as people about, about sharing the love of Jesus and letting people know, hey, we love them and we're here as a church. What does that look like for us as a church? Well, there's a few ways, and, and really, um, normally on Vision Sunday, I go into great detail of things we're going to do, and I, that's not my intention today. I wanted, to, I wanted you to see, I wanted to cast the vision God has for us, but I just want to give you a little taste. Okay, we need to uh, continue to build relationships as a church with, uh, with the neighborhoods around us, but take it a step further. Um, just, a few, just a couple months ago, um, our young people went and knocked on doors and, and offered to shovel people's driveways. You, you don't understand how that can impact lives. We're going to find ways to do more of that. Find ways to, to show our neighbors, especially right around this church, hey, we love you. We love you. We're not just going to pound your door and make you feel guilty. We care about you. We want to come alongside members of our community in positions uh, where they need support, such as our, our police officers. A couple of years ago, we did uh, something, some of you remember, where we uh, got every name of the police officers. Ken James headed this up. We got uh, the name of every police officer in Mishawaka, and we as a church, we spread those names out, and you, uh, you pledged to pray for them. But we want to do that again, but we want to take it even further than that and find ways to minister to those police officers and let them know we're here and we care about them. We want to find ways to minister to, to the public school system and not just be uh, the people who, uh, you know, don't go there or don't have anything to do with them, but no, people that love them and care for them and will go out of our way to let them know, hey, we're here if you need someone. Or our, our city council or our emergency response or whoever else it may be. We want to use our growth groups as an opportunity to connect with our neighbors. Some of you are involved in growth groups, some of you aren't. I would love to see it grow and not be just something that we do internally, but something that we include people from our neighborhoods. 
We want to offer classes to our community to help them grow in areas such as health and fitness and finances and families so that we can open the door to share the gospel. And we're already working on some of these things behind the scenes and preparing ourselves for them. My question for you is, what are you going to do your, uh, what, how are you going to do your part to build bridges for the gospel, whether it's with your neighbors or with the world around us? Um, kind of an interesting um, story. This, this past few weeks, Pastor Nate and I have been talking about this, um, and we've been talking about the basic idea of building bridges and what that means as a church, and so... I, I wrote down this slogan on, on paper as something I wanted to talk about this year, and that was that we need, to, um, we need to reach our neighbors, our community, and the world. And, and I asked Nate to put this slide, which you can't see very well up there, but, and he did another one, and in it he put something else. He put, you can see at the bottom there, reaching neighbors, neighborhoods, and nations. We came up with the same exact thing, just different wording. His wording's better, so we're going to go with his. But, you know, that's how it is. But I thought it was interesting that as we've been talking and as we've been, uh, you know, asking what God wants, that, that God directed us to the same exact thing. But here's my question again for you, is what are you going to do? If you sit back and say, you know what, that's left for the younger people, or that's left for people who are good at communicating, or that's not my responsibility, then you missed Basically, my whole message. This is a task that God has for every single person in this room that calls upon the name of the Lord. How are you doing? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that we can call you Lord. God, we know that that means that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that he is the supreme power overall. And that power extends down to us as we lean on him and as we trust in him for his guidance and his direction. Lord, sometimes we get caught up in doing our own thing. You know this. You know we're sinful people. We're selfish people. Sometimes we forget the task that you have for us. God, it's huge. And if we're honest, God, it's very scary. So I pray that you will embolden us as individuals and as a church. God, there's a whole community around our church that needs you. Lord, I pray, help us not to forget that. Help us to develop a love for people who are maybe not even the same as us. But yet, as we read, this this message, this good news is for them as well. So Lord, I pray that you will work in our lives. Lord, convict us. Continue to bring this topic up in our minds and our hearts. We thank you for all you've done. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.